So the way I'm going to read is uh, I'll read it twice. That's that's standard praxis for, for this. Empty beach. My mouth is a seashell. Empty beach. My mouth is a seashell. This is Timothy Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 232. Today's guest is Joshua Eric Williams. Josh is author of two full-length collections of haiku from Red Moon Press, The Strangest Conversation, which received an honorable mention from the Haiku Society of America's 2020 Merit Book Awards, and Silent After, which was just released. His haiku, Silent After, from Rattle's Poetry Spawn series, was nominated for a Pushcut Prize and won a 2022 Touchstone Award from the Haiku Foundation. And here he is, Joshua Eric Williams. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Hey, doing well. Excited to talk about haiku and the collection. Yeah, Did yeah, me too. Uh, you know, it's uh, I love haiku, as you know, all our viewers know. I think it's a really great form and a great community too. And it's really nice, you know, to have maybe once every couple months or so have someone from that great haiku community uh, to come out and share haiku and talk about this really wonderful form. Uh, why don't you start out with a, with a few haiku from the new book? Yeah, sure. Sure. Sunburst. Through the Magnolia search results. Sunburst. Through the Magnolia search results. Yeah, so we have two haiku off the bat that are very interesting, as all your haiku are, Josh. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're, uh, what you're going for. Like when you sit down to write a haiku, um, what is it that you're doing here with, with so few words and, and so much packed into them? Usually... What I'm seeking is shosei, which is a Japanese term for a sketch of life. Um, that's normally the, the the entry into into the poem. Um, and then from there, I mean, my, what, what my own territory is, because, you know, as, as Basho said, do not follow in the footsteps of the ancients, seek what they saw. Um, so I want to make it my own. Uh, oftentimes I, I put some sort of metric in, in, in my own poems, um, an Americanized spin on that, um, while also remaining within the form. Um, hopefully if I, if I can't get a Kigo or a season word within my haiku, um, it, I hope to at least elicit um, the feel of a season um in the poem Mm -hmm. uh but when i what what i ultimately want is for the experience to be created in such a way that the experience is transferred to the reader that the haiku itself becomes a a haiku moment for the reader and allows them to participate in what uh what's called you know creative reading Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much uh, interaction, I guess you could say, in these haiku. I mean, like there's, you know, haiku, it's almost important or maybe central to to allow the reader to participate. Um, And and there's so much room here, though. I mean, the leap that you make with each haiku is really large. Um, So if you look back at at the first haiku, um, empty beach, my mouth is a seashell. Um, Take us through a little bit of what you what you meant by that. Do you remember what inspired that haiku, how it how it came to be? Well, it, this was not a desk haiku. This was actually at a uh, local uh, lakes beach area. And uh, uh, I found like uh, it wasn't a, a seashell, but it was something that looked like it. And that inspired that that moment. Um, and so uh, the, the leap comes from having this greater 
another technique in haiku is this idea of zooming out and then zooming into the specific to arrive at a um, at a moment to arrive at a communication. Um, and so the, the empty beach itself, and I think this was during uh, one of like, uh, I think this was during the pandemic, actually. And uh, so you have this scene of the empty beach and then this sort of like uh, quiet that washed over me. Um, this sort of, uh, uh, I want to say a spiritual moment where I didn't have the words for anything. Um, and this was my attempt of capturing that kind of silence, which I also thought was a perfect way of entering into a, the collection, which has a lot to do with um, silence. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's one of those, it's a very enigmatic type of statement. Empty beach, my mouth is a seashell. And of course, you think, you know, that the sounds of the empty beach, that ringing, um, you know, the waves, the rolling in and rolling in, and then the, and then the ringing echo inside the seashell. And so there's all this noise um, without being sure, you know, it's sort of white noise, but but with a pattern too. Um, so it's a really interesting uh, sort of feeling that it's evoked from this. Um, and it is a great haiku to start with. Uh, and then let's let's take a look at the, the second one too that you already read. Um, Sunburst through the Magnolia search results. Um, and those search results are uh, a sort of a surprise. Uh, it was a big cut there, you know, from the nature to, uh, you know, technology in our place within it. Uh, what can you tell us about this haiku? Yeah, um, so... This was, uh, I can't remember exactly when I wrote this, but uh, there's a magnolia near my house. Uh, and it had been cloudy and there was a separation and sunburst that came through this uh, this uh, tree. And the pattern was, was very interesting. And the haiku came about as a way of talking about things in our lives that we're looking for or that we need. Um, and, and I felt that, um, you know, oftentimes we, we look for those things electronically. <laughs> we look for those experiences, uh, in a, uh, removed setting in an impersonal setting. Um, and I wanted to juxtapose, which is another key thing in, in haiku. I wanted to juxtapose this natural experience with, um, I don't want to say that it's, uh, artificial because, uh, my, my particular outlook is that human life and things developed by humans are, by definition, a part of nature. I don't see a, a separation between the two. But I wanted to show uh, this sort of in-person, you know, this impersonal communication that we normally have versus this experience that I had of looking for a moment, looking for a connection. And, and then finally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to talk sort of more than we normally do when we have a haiku poet on about, um, about each haiku because they're so layered and there's so much going on um, within them. And, um, and, so, and so these are two great examples of, um, of what haiku can do and how much space you leave for the reader. Uh, let's read the next, the next one. In my bedroom. Night's branches reach in. In my bedroom, night's branches reach in. 
Yeah. So another one, and, and sort of this, you know, let the the feeling of that hover in the air. I mean, haiku are so much about the space that surrounds the words, the, you know, the, the, what's not said, and you can really feel these. Uh, and that's really the I think the strength of this collection, reading through, is how much um, empty space. You know, it's one haiku per page, um, a lot of white space, a lot of um, rest and reflection between each haiku. Um, which is a little bit surprising to me um, because, you know, if we talk about uh, Silent After, the title haiku, you know, that's one of those that you sort of get right away. Um, and the, it doesn't hover. I mean, it still has that weight, that heavy weight of silence uh, surrounding it. Um, but it's a little less enigmatic on the, on the first read. Um, and so, so it's a really interesting collection. Um, and what can you tell us about how you got into haiku? Um, was it something that you always did? Uh, when was, was your first introduction to haiku? My introduction to haiku, my first experience with haiku was in second grade. And that's where I learned, you know, the normal, the, the, what we expect, what most Americans expect from a haiku. I was taught that it's in five, seven, five syllable format. That it's uh, about nature. And that was about the extent of my education. Uh, up until I was in college, I, I think I was a sophomore, and I had a professor who had something on her Facebook every Monday called Monday Haiku, and she was a Facebook friend. So I participated in that and started off with 575 type uh, haiku and, and slowly worked my way into learning about form. And I started learning about uh, Harold Henderson, uh, Nick Virgilio, um, you know, a lot of that, uh, Hackett. Uh, I started learning about the the, uh, the the guys who were writing these forms in, in uh, American '60s, in the '70s, and then I slowly worked my way back and back and back until you know I got to the Japanese masters and began to understand, you know. Uh, more about the form, you know, it's a intense history, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I think it has a 400 year history from like it's incipient stages from, you know, haku before it became haiku. Um, and then, you know, um, understanding, you know, when, when, uh, Basho created, uh, you know, the high Kai, the starting verse, of uh, the the uh, Ringa and uh, changed it into something serious, something um, scholarly, and something and then turned it into literature, and not uh, the you know uh, vulgar or what they called earthy <laughs> haku uh, back then. And so you know you go from like uh, you know the second century AD to the 17th century. And, you know, I honestly started off, and here's the myth of how haiku started, is that a traveler was asked about his journey, and then the collaborative exchange between uh, the traveler and the person asking the question created the collaborative uh, poem known as Ringa. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so so Basho, you know, you know uh, I discovered a lot, and, and he was very his work is still very much influential. I mean, you're looking at a man who was so great at the form that in 1793, he was deified by the imperial government and the Shinto bureaucracy. 
Like it was literally blasphemous to criticize his work. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's amazing, you know, looking back at, at Fasho is um, they, how they hold up. You know, if you look back at any other poetry from the you know 1700s, um, you know, there, there's a sort of antiquated feel and there's a way that the, the concepts, like it's not pushing into the mind as far and into experience itself as far as, um, as, as Basho was doing that at that same time. Um, you know, and certain poems of his um, just, just really cut deep into what it means to be human in a way that, that um, you know, what was being written in English at the time was sort of explaining and describing what it was to be human. Um, but the insights were sort of something, I don't know, preconceived in a way or, or less just they, they didn't have the same leaps. You know, I mean, poems, you know, we talk all the time on the show about how poems are like magic spells. They're sort of conjuring this sort of special space where you can learn a deeper, new understanding that you didn't realize you, you could understand. You know, taking, making new meaning out of the chaos of our, you know, extremely complicated experience. And, and you know, what Basho was doing way back then just holds up with the, the best that anybody has done ever since. And we've developed a lot in the last you know, 350 well, years. And that's it. You know, so uh, Basho was communicating a spiritual truth. And this was something done with his entire being, you know. Uh, his whole life was dedicated to this expression of the spiritual, his connection with the natural world. And then you had, you know, from after Basho, you had Busan, who created more of the the artistic expression in the haiku and then you had isa that made it more personal and then you know shiki was he's the one who came up with the term haiku so haiku really didn't start until uh the term really didn't start until shiki though the the concepts and and much of the practice was always there shiki um allowed it also to take on this uh modernist upheaval which is still going on uh, especially in America, because since the 60s, because uh, that's, that's basically where you're looking at. I mean, it came into form in the 40s with R.H. Blythe's translations, but um, it didn't really take on a catch on really until uh, the 60s. And uh, from there, from there, I mean, it's just exploded into all of these different ways of expressing haiku moments. Uh, it's really rich. It's a really great moment to get into to haiku as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's possible to leave uh, leave a mark on the the the, the form. Yeah, yeah, really interesting thing to say. Well, let's hear another one. Sure. Bittersweet. Already the leaves tempting. Bittersweet. Already the leaves tempting. Yeah. April sun crucified in my window. April sun crucified in my window. And so you can see the moment of that, um, the, the um, sound pun of sun and sun uh, with the Easter context, uh, April sun crucified in my window. Um, and in so many ways to cut and dice up the language, like there's sort of a, an expression that you put out that can be cut up and thought of in a lot of different ways. I think that's one of the key features of your haiku, especially. Yeah, um, well, you're looking at multiple pivot words, right? And my my one of my practices is I want to layer 
a haiku as if it's several haiku at once because that's that's what it kind of is uh my own spiritual ideas are that um everything is a whole everything is is connected everything is uh i don't want to get too religious or anything um but you know um there is a a shared experience between us as people and a shared experience between us and nature and we are all one in in the natural world um if that makes sense um and so i don't know you know that's just how the language uh, occurs to me um some of these are desk poems some of them I, i sit down and i'm like okay here is what i'm trying to get across what natural imagery can i use to to do this um but you know most are are something i've experienced um and usually recent experiences it's a it's a daily practice for me it's a daily spiritual practice for me um you know i find myself learning a lot from how the natural world operates um and uh it's sort of my my own uh, so that's the reason why the, my first collection was called the strangest conversation um is because i felt like, you know, this is a kind of conversation that I have with not only people such as yourself, but with the natural world, mm-hmm. um, the different manifestations of nature. So uh, so this was a uh, Silent After is your second book. And the first is uh, The Strangest Conversation. Um, it, so so your process, do you write? Um, do you write every day? Like you mentioned, is it is it sort of one haiku a day that you make sure you uh, put together? At least one haiku a day. Uh, Sometimes I write longer poems because those just come out. Um, This is my first love and first practice. Uh, My second is, you know, longer works that are, uh, they can't help but be inspired by haiku thought and uh, that way of perception. Um, But yeah, yeah, normally one haiku a day. And that sounds like it wouldn't be a lot. (laughs) <laughs> but trying to find um, these haiku moments, the ha- aha moment, as a lot of people refer to them as, that's incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. Um, and it's a, it's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, a I lifestyle. mean, you, you mentioned that haiku moment, that phrase a few times. Um, and, and to me, there is a spirituality to it. You know, and I was thinking of even talking about Basho that, um, you know, he, he was sort of a, a spiritual messenger, kind of prophet through poetry. Um, and so, so how describe what that haiku moment means to you. Like, what is a haiku moment exactly? And how does it tie into spirituality? It is a moment of insight that is epiphantic. It is something that uh, allows you to see the world in some small but new way. Um, and I think that's what all poems do. And so what we call the aha or haiku moment is that turn that you see in most poems. It is that switch that goes off it is the jumping between that electrical charge between the neuron and dendrite, the charge and the spark plug between the gap, uh, that firing. That's what every poem does. Uh, and poetry came from a spiritual process. And that, that subconscious writing, uh, the ice sliding across the stove, as Robert Frost would say, um, that all came from these sort of 
spiritual encounters. Song was a way in which we expressed, you know, our uh, devotion to a deity or uh, sung a deity's praises or, you know, even someone we love or uh, the natural world, the beauty of the natural world. Um, it all comes through through this sort of um, um, lively language, this living language, really. Um, so yeah, um, that's that's uh, that's really what what a, what a haiku moment is. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hear uh, let's hear some haiku from uh, the strangest conversation too, and, and that talk about that deeper conversation that we're having here. Sure. Deep breaths, the distance of a falling star. Deep breaths, the distance of a falling star. Backlit clouds, I turn into my wife's voice. Backlit clouds, I turn into my wife's voice. Summer dawn, a red carnation full of rain. Summer dawn, red carnation full of rain. Stargazers, a lightning bug signals a mate. Stargazers, a lightning bug signals a mate. Starlit mountain, the car hums on in a lower gear. Starlit mountain. The car hums on in a lower gear. Returning crickets, the old hymn my father once sang. Returning crickets, the old hymn my father once sang. Memorial Day, the coal will become. Memorial Day, the coal will become. And those were seven haiku from uh, The Strangest Conversation, the first book uh, by Joshua Eric Williams from Red Moon Press. Um, and so already there's a, a question uh, from Monica Dobo. She'd like to know more about haiku being a lifestyle. And Kashyana Singh says, uh, adds here, sort of an answer, I think, practice versus process, like a kind of meditation. Um, can you talk about a bit about what it's like to have haiku as a lifestyle? Um, how does it change your life when you're not writing haiku? Okay, I'll, I'll put it this way. So it has made me a much more spiritual person than I ever was. Um, when I was in, uh, before I, I started writing haiku, um, I was very hardline atheist, and it led me on this spiritual journey into process theology, led me into Eastern traditions, uh, led me back to Native American Cher Cherokee spirituality, um, a lot of different places. And um, it uh, brought me into practicing Aikido. Uh, and this was a, I was in the military. And so I went from a military kind of life into uh, practicing a uh, martial art that um, is about protecting your attacker's life as much as it is your own. Um, and to practicing Tai Chi just recently with my wife. Um, so it leads you to this appreciation for, for life and, uh, all life, not just, just human life, but, uh, every sort of life. Um, 
Um, so, and, and as far as it like impacting my lifestyle, it, it, you can't help it because you're always, I'm always looking for haiku and I'm always looking for some sort of um, communication there between myself and the natural world. And I feel uh, much more connected to it um, than I ever did beforehand. And uh, I, I think that it allows you to truly heal that divide that that we've created with um, our our sort of um, technical and money driven kind of world. Um, I don't I don't know how to exactly put it other than it it softened my heart and made me more sensitive to the world around me. And that sensitivity allows me to, uh, well, it, it sort of drives me to create these these haiku, these sort of experiences. Yeah, well, this book, uh, the, the first book is called The Strangest Conversation. And, and that aspect of it being a conversation with nature or with, I don't know, the divine or whatever you'd want to call it, the, the larger universe. If you look back at, um, at the first haiku, Deep Breaths, The Distance of a Falling Star, um, th there's a way that, you know, we think when we talk about poetry, uh, there's a way a lot of people say like they feel like their best poems just sort of come from some other place. Like there's another voice they're speaking for. And they're almost transcribing. It's a very common thing for people to say that, you know, the best poems a lot of times are the ones that we just rush off and sort of come as if we weren't even thinking it was like somebody else. Um, and but but really, if you're thinking about through the term, you know, through the lens of haiku in this actual conversation that you're having, um, it becomes clear clear in a way that that we're actually we are the voice for the universe i mean we're the ones who put the universe into words and so in a way does it does it feel like translating i mean what is it what how is it a conversation to you what do you sort of get back and give like if you're if, so you're, if you're translating the cosmos um what is the you know what are you giving back to the cosmos too? I mean, that, that, how is it a conversation and not, um, you know, you just you know, listening? What's the difference? You know, I, I truly believe that our existing is enough, that th this is not some sort of calling that I've been um, given, that I'm, you know, um, I, I think that this is a uh, response of gratitude for the life that I've, I've been given and the life that I, that I have. Um, you know, the word inspiration comes from, um, this, uh, filled with spirit, right? And I, I think you can sort of, uh, look at that filled with spirit as a kind of, a kind of gratitude, a kind of thankfulness. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as like any sort of special calling, uh, you know, I, I don't see that, but I do, I do agree with you that we are all. Um, the voice of the universe. And uh, that is one, you know, there's a, there's a belief, uh, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Crossland Smith. He is the Cherokee Nation spiritual advisor. And he says that we are all born with spiritual gifts. Um, that's what's one of the traditional um, uh, beliefs. Um, and, and I truly believe that. I think we all have our own unique contributions to provide to the process, to the natural world, the way, God, deity, whatever you want to, great spirit, whatever you want to call that, whether it's just the universe and the process of science and evolution, still a process, still something that guides our lives. 
um, or if it's, um, you know, you want to call Yahweh or whatever. Um, um, there's there's a, a gift that we're all using and contributing towards each other. And I, I think one of the intimate ways of getting to know um, that process, that, that substance, that divine, is through the natural world. Uh, in many ways, uh, God's body, right? God's manifestation. Yeah. Um, you know, given that it's a spiritual practice, I think um, um, it was, uh, where'd it go? Penelope Moffat wants to know if you have a certain ritual that helps you get into that mind frame to write haiku. Um, is, is there a way that you open that spiritual space? You know, uh, there are several. There are several ways. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's just, it's instantaneous, you know. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, there's a concept in Cherokee spiritual. Spirituality called one of those purification rituals um, that you do to sort of um, to, to get the negativity out of your body. Cherokee is all about Cherokee spirituality is about um, balance, and um, so you want to get rid of that kind of negativity. Um, that's that's one thing, but it's not necessarily a haiku practice. Um, you know, um, walking definitely, definitely what they call a ginkgo. You know, but I often I just go for a hike. Um, mm -hmm. clearing my mind and clearing your mind often lets your subconscious rain and inspiration comes from that. Um, but yeah, um, as far as like, I, I do meditative practice and things like that. Um, but not with the, the object being to write a, a poem. Mm -hmm. uh, I think those are all helpful though, in quieting the mind and allowing yourself to, um, Get, get away from the stress of, of the, the world that we live in. Yeah. Do, do you find, do you write in your head or do you write, um, like actually, do you have like the idea that you're going to try to craft and then you sit down to a computer or whatever and write it out? Or do you write in your head and hold that thought until you go write it down? Sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes I write in my head, I'll be driving down the road and I'll see something like a, a power pole and then pine seedlings or saplings right next to the power pole. And that will that that would inspire me. So I'll, I'll try to write that in my mind, and I might edit and perfect it, or try to get it into better language once I'm at a desk. Mm -hmm. um, but and, and, you know, sometimes I'll dream, uh, dream in like written words. Um, not all the time, but sometimes I'll do that. Um, well, we know that because often, we have your uh, your haiku that Stephen or your poem that Stephen King told you <laughs> to write down. In which is a which is a kind of high been on its own. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, um, most of them are, are desk haiku. Um, and that sounds like that's a pejorative, but it's not. It's not. I'm just being honest. People want to pretend like there are a lot of people who pretend that. Uh, the poetry process or creating the poem is something that just falls out of you. It just, just occurs. And that's not the truth of the matter. It is a process. It is a practice like anything else. And even if it's a short haiku, you might, now those are a little different. Sometimes those might just come out. Um, but it's not something that happens often. I don't speak in haiku. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't go to the grocery store and, you know, you know, communicate with the cashier 
in a haiku in that moment or anything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's something that's always on my mind. Though, and I filter my experience through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the practice that that's really important, I think, is observing the observational skills are very important to the food. Yeah, well, let's go back to Silent After and, and talk about that title poem, which appeared in Rattled and, of course, won a Touchstone Award. Um, why don't you read that, and then, then we'll talk a little bit about how the poem came to be. Okay. Silent after the shooting stars. Silent after the shooting stars. Yeah, and uh, and Katie Dozier was asking, uh, was was this instantaneously written, or was it edited beyond the initial version? And I think that the answer, I remember you talking about it somewhere else. I think you edited it quite a bit, right? It was a lot of shifting around to get the line breaks right, especially. Yeah, it, it was because um, this is one of those layered kind of haiku where depending on the break, um, it can mean different things. And also the sort of interpretation of each word. And um, even like looking at the grammar of the, the poem changes its meaning. Um, yeah. So if, if you look at after as a noun, you know, it changes the the whole meaning of it. Um, or if you look at after the shooting as like this parenthetical, um, it changes the meaning. Um, but yeah, it, it took it took a long time to write five words, <laughs> uh, five words, and um, it, it was something that um, you know was inspired by uh, all of the you know Uvalde and all of these shootings going on. Um, and then this sort of uh, moment of looking up at the stars and this sort of like this not, not uncaring, but the sort of like distance between like yourself and the connection with that that in, uh, immense space, that immense distance and something so close to home mm-hmm. as well. And it just gives you um, it gave me um, these complicated feelings that wouldn't be expressed in such a simple, uh, such, such a simple poem. And so it needed, it needed more layer and that's achieved through, um, layers of cutting and also, uh, different emphasis on, uh, various emphases on different words. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's just such a great, one of the great poems, you know, explaining the sublime really, you know, that, so if you look back at it again, um, you know, it could be silent after, the shooting stars. So silent after something else, the shooting stars, it could be silent after the shooting stars. And then it becomes that, you know, a mass shooting response, which is what this poem is in poets respond anyway, in that context, you know, in the face of all this tragedy and suffering, the, the indifference of the stars up there, that, that sort of quiet permanence of no matter what we do here on earth, those stars are still there shining down on us, but silently not commentating on, you know, what we're doing. Um, and almost helplessly. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you could personify it too as, a, as mm-hmm. if that's a helpless thing, but also you could look at the stars as sort of bullet holes uh, themselves in, in the in the sky. Uh, yeah, or even and, like like gods that wish they could intervene. You know, I mean that's sort of a sense in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so do you remember by any chance? I mean, how many drafts of this, or what an early where it came from? Do you remember anything in the process of, of crafting this tiny? I mean, it's so it's five words, um, but it contains so much. Do you remember anything about earlier versions? I remember, I remember writing "Silent After," and I knew that I was writing in response to 
these shootings. And I knew I needed to do something with shooting. And it took uh, at least 20-something drafts, playing around, switching things around uh, to get there. But, uh, you know, also one of my, my things is I wanted to make it into um, this uh, – uh, into a, a metrical kind of thing. So it's also uh, written uh, metrically uh, as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it took quite some time to get it to the format that I really wanted it. And I, to me, a haiku needs to give me chills for me to attempt to publish it. If it doesn't do that to me, then I don't think it'll do it to somebody else. And so that's really one of my rules. Uh, the haiku has to do something for me um, before that. So uh, it took a long time for me to get that that chill up the spine. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, so it was a lot of hard work, but also, you know, I think it uh, to some extent it was, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of luck too. And I think that's, that's how it is with... Um, a lot of poems, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if you ask me to write, you know, five more poems like this right now, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Um, I could write something like it, but it wouldn't be as powerful. Um, so the, the poets who say that, you know, they feel like some, somebody's writing through them or they, after they've written a poem and it's been a while and they look back on it, they don't know how they wrote it. They don't know how that the person who they were managed to write that. <laughs> um, I, I feel the same way mm -hmm. uh, about this particular haiku. Yeah. Well, let's hear a couple more uh, from the book. Bird song and iambic steps, this medley through pine branches. Bird song and iambic steps, this medley through pine branches. Thunderhead, all notes below middle C. Thunderhead, all notes below middle C. Evening rain, the sun won't tell me godless God's name. Evening rain, the sun won't tell me godless God's name. Tune down half a step Memorial Day. Tune down half a step Memorial Day. Yeah, so another just great examples of how you know layered these poems are, um, and how concentrated the, the meaning and content is from uh, "Silent After Again" by Joshua Eric Williams. You mentioned uh, Josh the the metrical nature of these haiku too, uh, which is something you don't hear very often from haiku poets at all talking about meter. Um, so how, um, what do you mean by that? That that first poem, or in this little sequence we just read, bird song and iambic steps, this mel this medley through pine branches. Um, so we have the iambic steps there. Um, how do you how do you deploy meter in haiku, and and why do you choose to do that? So I my my MFA uh, was uh, through Western Colorado University. And at the time, they had a program in something called Versecraft. And uh, so I was trained in formal poetry. Um, and so there's a, a formalist bent in most of everything I do, whether it's um, 
meter or if it's uh, counted verse, which is like, you know, number of words per line or, um, you know, whatever. You can have a metric in, in any kind of way. You can measure in all sorts of ways. Um, and for me, this allows me to create music within a haiku without rhyming. Um, you know, though I, I don't have anything against people who rhyme in haiku, it is one of the, the central tenets that you don't rhyme. <laughs> in haiku and i think that stems from the fact that it's so easy to rhyme in japanese mm -hmm. um so in america i mean uh rhyming would be harder to do so i mean i don't have a problem with it i think it's it's just like translating it from one language to another that came over with it you know um so i think it's one way of creating music um there's also a kind of performance that can happen within um, a meter, uh, a performance of the theme or what's going on in the poem that can't be done through words that only, it only survives within, uh, the metrical context. Like if you're talking about something being overturned or something being broken, breaking a meter, you know, uh, like, uh, substituting a foot in there, to, to demonstrate that, oddly enough, can uh, create a music that that resembles what you're trying to say and what's going on in the poem. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the reasons. Not all of my poems are metrical. Not all of them are because sometimes the brevity of the haiku dictates that you can't. Um, the, the haiku would be destroyed if you if you impose that on every single one it's also why the 575 uh, haiku is so difficult to create not only is that more information than what uh, the original japanese dictates given that japanese sound units uh mora or on um they're, they're smaller than the japanese syllable i mean the american syllable the english syllable so you really get something like uh, in English, the English equivalent would be like 10 to 13 syllables, something like that. Uh, and so to maintain that sort of brevity and that kind of um, that, that moment and uh, um, I don't know, uh, to me, the smaller it is, the smaller these these haiku are, the more uh, close they are to that experience, you know, and not as filtered through the mind. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like haiku are translating this wordless understanding. So, you know, so the fewer words, the fewer sounds, the closer they could be to uh, that understanding, maybe. I did notice we did a nod toward the 575 by reading five haiku, then seven, then five <laughs> from the book. Um, and, you know, none of the haiku that we read are, you know, counting syllables at all, as far as I know. If they count anything, it's, it's beats. Um, you know, and the ones that feel like they do. Um, I think you do a lot of uh, sort of like two, three, two beats and things like that, um, but but not counting syllables. Um, and, and so, do you? What do you think about about that? Do you think it's possible to write a five seven five haiku? And I guess we should. I mean, you talked a little about it, but the the problem is that that um, you know it's a more time language, so they count the unit of time and not the actual syllable. And so some syllables can be. We had uh, Michael Dylan Welch on almost a year ago exactly, and he used the the example of the word Joe, joy, joys, joist, 
joists all being one syllable but being up to five mora or, or own as they're called in the japanese and so it just makes <laughs> no sense to to be counting syllables when the syllables are stretched across such a variety of lengths for what the japanese were doing and there's a fascinating way too You're, you mentioned um you know music in a few you know that that wonderful last one that the half tuned half step down for memorial day haiku um and, and there's a way as, as i understand it um, it's more like in, in the Japanese a musical measure. So there's sort of like a certain duration of time that each line would represent. And then the fact that you have these gaps in the time or like these silent spaces that you, um, you know, that you let be sort of impregnated with meaning. So it's really that silence not filling the entire musical measure of that uh, seven own line um, that, that makes the haiku really. And that's sort of the space where the haiku moment exists is that unfilled sort of blank within the poem. Do, do you yeah. think about doing that um, in, in your haiku? When, when you use meter, are you thinking about maybe like leaving beats out to sort of represent that? I've thought a lot about how that might be represented in, you know, a stress-based language like English. And it seems like it would be if you somehow could make it so a certain number of beats were expected, but then leave them off. So there can be that sort of hanging feeling where it's incomplete. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the Memorial Day haiku uh, in the strangest conversation, you'll notice. Uh, so it's four syllables. That's two iambic feet. There's one iambic foot in the second line, and then there's a not. Uh, you could you could honestly make it into two iams with w wheel being a headless foot, and then become being the second iambic uh, foot in that line. And so the coal is left by itself, and there's a space there of the missing foot from the expectation. If you're if you're looking for an expectation uh, of the uh, iambic meter to continue. Um, there's that gap, that silence. Um, the silence itself is is a cut uh, mm -hmm. within the, the poem. Um, to to imply, you know, not only um, death, but um, to also imply, um, you know, um, the sort of um, potential to become more or to do more. Um, I don't know. There, there's, I don't like to interpret my own <laughs> my own uh, poetry. Uh, that yet again, one of the central things is creative reading for the reader to participate in the creation of meaning in the haiku. Um, I, it's very much a uh, it's very much a great example of reader response uh, criticism. Like uh, it's a demonstration of that of the reader and uh, their ability and uh, necessity in generating meaning. Uh, in the text. Mm -hmm. uh, you do have one uh, that you sent separately, a 575 haiku. Do you want to read that? And maybe we can compare the difference between that and what you've been reading so far. Sure, sure. Uh, growing full, the moon swearing the 17 sounds it wants, I'm wanting. Growing full, the moon swearing the 17 sounds it wants, I'm wanting. Yeah, and so there's a haiku, and I think it works in uh, 17 sounds, 17 syllables, but it's a rare haiku to me that can fit in that length. I mean, it feels like it just, you know, you can see, you know, in the length of that that haiku there, it's twice as long as the ones you've been reading, um, you know, having that much room. I mean, silent after the shooting stars, um, and this uh, that's uh, five, 
Um, and this one you is know, uh, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. So it's more than half, <laughs> more than twice as many words as that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, so like you go to that classical definition of uh, from Robert uh, Spies, um, where he said that haiku is a breath length poem. And uh, I don't know many people who have that kind of length in their breath, the 17 syllables and also allotting for punctuation and things like that. Um, to me, it's a much more compact uh, version of that, that, you know, the 10 to 13 syllables that, that sort of gets around to the breath length uh, uh, limit uh, on that. Mm-hmm. So, so there's certain, you know, aspects. I think Michael Dillon Welch, again, to go back to last year's episode about haiku, talked about there being sort of a set of targets. It's sort of like a cluster of targets that you might want to try to hit if you're writing a small poem that's an effective in the way that a haiku is. Like, that's how he's careful to put it. But there's certain things like having a kigo, um, which is the, the, that season-based, um, you know, word uh, that, that alludes to the, the time of year. Um, there's the you know, the, the, the length being the short, long, short, there's, um, a cut of some kind very often there's juxtaposition. Um, um, how much do you feel like an English language haiku should follow along to those rules? And, and how do you determine which rules matter more than the other ones? Yeah. So, you know, I often write several different kinds of haiku. I don't find myself in one particular camp. There are traditionalists, who are like, you must have a Kigo, you must have a cut, you must have uh, no rhyme, none of those things. Um, I'm very open to those things for everyone, just as I am with with poetry in general. There are my my particular, um, you know, my particular talking points. I do like for um, it to have some sort of form, some sort of metric there some sort of measurement, something to, some sort of framework to, to go against, right? Uh, to, or to push against. Um, but, you know, uh, so if, if somebody wants to write in 575, I, I don't care if, if they continue to do that. Um, though, I mean, like I said earlier, there's an argument for why you might not want to. Um, I do believe that you should use a Kigo, if at all possible. But I also believe that you can get to a key go through the sound and what's mentioned in the poem. Um, and also we're writing in English. We don't have, so in Japanese you have compendiums of key go and their seasons are a little different than ours. Um, and so you can come up with your own key go. So the word jacket for the fall, right? Um, even something like one of my favorites is uh, I'll write civil twilight or blue hour uh, as Kigo. Um, but those are scientific terms and they're not necessarily about the season mm-hmm. um, that you're in. Um, but it creates an emotion. You know, it does create an emotional scene. And I would think that um, something like blue hour could suggest um, a particular time of the spring or, or summer. And I think that um, civil twilight produces this sort of um, more of a fall kind of quality um, to it. Um, but, you know, we don't have compendiums of Kigo here like they do in Japan. And um, when we do use Kigo, um, such as winter rain or something like that, 
um, we we're also entering into that tradition where we're speaking to past poets who've used those same Kigo. Um, but our tradition is different and it's evolving. Um, I think Michael Dylan Welch is completely correct in, in the way that, that he approaches uh, the haiku. But I also believe that the form is evolving and we have different ways of of reaching new forms of expression. And that's how we keep a form fresh mm-hmm. and we keep it new. Um, uh, for instance, you know, a lot of one line haiku or monoku are um, very, very popular right now. And for good reason, because there's so, so much you can do with those. And uh, there's nothing wrong um, with that. Um, and if you can do a four line haiku, then, you know, go for it. Or the one word haiku. Uh, even, mm-hmm. you know, like a core van de Hoovel's tundra, you know, um, that's, that's a brilliant, brilliant poem with one word. Um, where's the cut in that? The cut is visual. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. Um, it certainly doesn't conform to a syllabic structure. Um, and, um, you know, even that Kiko is, um, debatable to some extent mm-hmm. you know certainly not a classical uh kigo um yeah yeah so that's that's how i feel about it you know uh for me you know to each their own uh with this and i wish them luck in that um i do think that however one central thing is juxtaposition i do believe that you need juxtaposition yeah, um, that's one thing I wanted to ask, because I've, I've been sort of on the hunt for a long time for a haiku that works without any kind of juxtaposition. And I think there's examples of them. Um, a lot of times, though, the, it's just at the end, it's sort of the haiku is either like in Tundra, the juxtaposition is visual, you know, like that, the white page versus the black text of the word Tundra. Um, other mm-hmm. times, the cut is sort of implied about what's going to happen at the end, almost like you're about to open a door and you sort of know what's going to be on the other side, even though it's never said, and then that becomes the cut. So you're jumping to a new place, even though the cut's at the very end. Um, or a lot of times, it's just the, a fact of like looking at one thing from like two different angles, and then that's the cut in, in perspective. So there's a lot of different cuts that aren't cuts in the way that maybe the the simplest, like one image next to another image, you know, but they're still there's still this juxtaposition between two things. It seems to me that you can't get around that in a poem that small, because if it doesn't, if it doesn't have anything, any cut, it doesn't have any sense of movement. Like nothing's being transformed. There's nothing being commented on if it's just a description. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, a, a sonnet without a volta. You know, you need that, that movement. You need to arrive somewhere different at the end in order to, um, to have a poem, in order to have a haiku, in order to have meaning, you know, from, from uh, that. So yeah, you can't have a moment and communicate a moment without some sort of, some sort of uh, trip, some sort of, you know, arrival somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, it feels like one of those challenges where as a writer, you'd like, oh, I'm going to try to do that. But then I, I just, I think it might be technically impossible. <laughs> so um uh, one of the the other things so you're talking about different forms, how the monoku is popular now. The hyben is really taking off in English too as a form. We had, um, you know, Lou Watts and Roberta Beery um, in the current issue that's coming out with a with a collaborative hyben. They're the two hyben editors at Modern Haiku and Frog Pond. Uh, Roberta was on the Rattlecast about uh, two years ago, and. Uh, 
And, and, and it's just a great form. Tell us what you do with your hybrid. I mean, the tradition we all know, or most of us know, I guess, is that, you know, journaling, you know, Basho, as he was traveling, would write these sort of diaries about his travels and include haiku within them and publish them as books. So the idea of complining prose descriptions like a diary, like a travel journal with haiku interspersed became something that was was popularized by Basho way back then. And now we're taking this form and just doing a lot of really creative things with it. So so tell us a little bit about what you've been doing uh, with Hyben. Yeah, um, so uh, the prose um, with haiku interspersed or after or before, um, that's, that's something I've practiced for a long time. But I've also done something called verse Hyben, where it's a a poem a long form western style poem that is then um has interspersed haiku or a haiku that follows Mm -hmm. and sometimes it might create an additional turn from that poem um highlighting um another aspect of the poem that wasn't mentioned before sort of like a, a secondary title in a way um a way of uh creating further insight um either during or after the, the poem. Yeah. Um, so that's that's been interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear one of those. We have uh, the, the Fall Redux. Let's read that. The Fall Redux. Formed from divine dirt and the holy spit, we were mud in the beginning. We didn't know our tits from balls. Truly, even then, the earthlings made of God a graven image. Even then, people wouldn't work the land we are or keep themselves. No serpent talked our parents out of paradise. No mouth devoured or swallowed whole such separation. No, we only beat our nature down until we couldn't talk to ourselves. Pink dust, I am this now. Yeah, that was the fall redux. And so one of the things that we've learned talking to Roberta Beery and, um, about Hyben is the way that there's sort of a cut between the, the prose or verse text right here and the title. You know, there's sort of a leap of imagination. Then there's a leap of imagination between the, the verse or prose and the haiku. And then there's this sort of leap of imagination and combining all three together, which is the really nice thing about this form is the, you allow it to have so many sort of big turns. It's like three voltas built right into the form, uh, which allows for a lot of depth. Um, tell us a little bit about how this one came to be and why, why you thought it should be a hyben with that haiku at the end. Um, you know, so, um, like I was saying earlier, you know, I have a, a huge, um, spiritual kind of life and, uh, I wanted to talk about the, the fall of man, you know, that, that sort of story of the fall of man biblically, but also talking about it environmentally. And I knew that I couldn't get at everything that I wanted to suggest in such a small space. And it wasn't enough, there wasn't enough room in a tonka to, get there either and i knew that a hyphen would be the necessary form for me to arrive at that um because i wanted to have one discourse within one poem but then to turn it and surprise to take, take the conversation away from just about god or just about like um our separation from the spiritual into the environmental and, and to talk about uh, pollution, because, you know, a pink dust means that the air is polluted. 
<laughs> and so I wanted to to find a way to um, to engage those things and make it not just a, a matter of spiritual health, but also um, environmental and personal mm-hmm. health as well. Um, so the the form, what I needed to communicate dictated the form in, in this particular one. Yeah, well, that definitely makes sense. And and did you did you know when you set it up, you know, started out that it was going to be a hybrid, or was it something in the process? You're like, oh, this needs to be one. Uh, it started off with a, the poem itself, mm-hmm. uh, because when I do write long form poems, I, I tend to want to keep them short. That's just my my style. What what I enjoy. Um, I also sort of believe that um, in our modern world, people don't have time to parse through three or four pages of poetry. Um, you know, and we're, we're able to, to more enjoy, um, a poem when it's shorter, I, I feel. And, um, so well, that's, that's what my, my style reflects. Um, uh, and that's also what I enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, um, that sort of Samuel Menashe style of small poem, uh, is, uh, you know, where, where I like to take my Western form or Western informed, uh, poetry. Well, we're coming up uh, on time. We'll finish that with one last one, but a couple, a little lightning round before <laughs> a couple of questions okay. for the audience. <laughs> so, um, so Bishwajit Mishra uh, wants to know regarding juxtaposition, do you prefer line one versus line three or anywhere within the haiku, um, explicit or implicit, even in the same line? Is there a certain place for the, the cut that you find works best? No, I mean, to be a creative, um, you know, it's not like uh, rules for um, Caesura or Kaiser, however you want to pronounce that, whether it's the Greek way or not. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, so, I mean, you have to be creative and allow yourself the flexibility to um, to, to put that where you find necessary. Um, I, I'm not the type of person to, to give prescriptions mm-hmm. uh, on that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that the creative spirit will guide you there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this one from uh, Sharon Ferrante, she'd like to know about the distinction between senru and haiku um do you uh do you get the same experience from senru as haiku i mean it was back talking about this emotional you know how it feels spiritual like you're having this strangest conversation with nature does it still feel that way when you're talking in the senru form about human you know interaction i I don't see it so with my own personal philosophy about there no being no separation between the human and nature i don't see a separation between Sinryu and haiku. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, for me personally, I think it's a false division. Um, although, I mean, I'm not going to blame someone for naming their work Sinryu and following that sort of format. Um, for me, for me, it's, it's all nature. Um, and so I don't, I don't see that division. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it is still a legitimate classification. And so if I were pushed to it, uh, if I'm writing a poem about human experience uh, that's that's funny, you know, um, does that make me feel different than um, writing another haiku? I, I don't think so, because to me, it's still a spiritual communication. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as I mean, I don't know. I, to me, the, the form shouldn't express hatefulness. <laughs> it shouldn't express something, uh, uh, you know, um, that that isn't. Um, worthy of communication so uh yeah yeah uh 
I, I think they're both if you if you see a division there, they're both worthwhile. Um they can be different in the way that you um develop them, but I still think that the, the end result is is the same. And like I said, I don't see mm-hmm. that difference. Yeah. I mean, myself. you know, Frog Pond, I don't know for how many years just says haiku and senru and doesn't divide them in different sections of the book or anything like that. Um, uh, last one from the audience. Mark Grinier wants to know how Tonka relate to haiku in your thinking. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think they're very similar. Um, I think that, oh, well, Tonka deal with um, more of the emotional and you can put more uh, drama and narrative into a Tonka, whereas a haiku is not not uh narrative driven um at all whatsoever mm-hmm. um there's still a um leap there there's still a, a juxtaposition in your tonka um which is necessary so that's how they're similar um and of course you know the seasonality um nature reference things like that could still be applied to, to tonka as well um but yet again all the conversation i've had about the way that haiku is changing it has changed and what you need and what you don't need or what you can put in or versus what you don't. I mean, that all applies to Tonka as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and last thing I wanted to ask you said about the book itself, the silent after, um, how did you go about arranging the haiku and deciding the order you wanted them to appear in? Because, you know, some, you know, haiku collections have a very clear narrative arc thinking about like Roberta Beery's The Unworn Necklace. Um, and, and, uh, this has sort of maybe a spiritual arc, I'd say, um, but, but not a narrative one, maybe. So how did you decide which haiku to include and then what order to put them in? Okay. Um, yeah. So you'll notice that neither of these collections have page numbers. Uh, that's like the first thing that you told me on the email is like, Hey, these don't have page numbers. How are we going to do this? Um, uh, to me, these are standalone experiences that in themselves they are they are narratives or experiences within themselves um and that's why you have one per page um like they're set up one per page on on, uh these uh in silent after um but i also arrange these according to um feeling and uh like you said there's a spiritual kind of alignment there sort of waking up into uh you'll notice that it silent after is like a pretty good ways into the collection um mm-hmm. which you know deals with you know like we said mass shootings um and then after this you spend several uh you know evening rain the sun will tell me godless god's name um there's some lamenting kinds of uh poems in there but then there's this um sort of recovery this uh restorative it's a it's a restorative kind of arc about what nature allows us to 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 recover from and it recovers itself as well mm-hmm. um so i would say that you know it's a spiritual one but it also follows a sort of a natural seasonal kind of approach even though they're not divided into hey this is summer this is you know this is fall winter spring um i do think it's still sort of follows um, that kind of arrangement mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, just great explanations for, for haiku and how your work is operating. Um, do you want to close out with uh, one more hyben? Uh, th- wisdom oh, is sure. not given, so we search in the dark. 
Wisdom is not given, so we search in the dark. The darkness is dense and deep at first, so we stumble through it. We clear paths for ourselves without knowing who we are or what we are destroying. With time, our eyes can adjust and begin seeing a low light somewhere in the pitch black, just beyond our reach. We head forward and arrive to find the light was within us from the start. The radiance inside us expands and the increasing brightness allows us to see more. Our horizons grow and what was hidden from us becomes apparent. We can simply move around what were not obstacles at all, but features of an unknown world. We begin trying to show others, but their eyes cannot adjust to the light. It blinds them, so we give them time and reveal what our light allows from a distance. Some will not tolerate the brilliance, furring the darkness, but others will appreciate the knowledge in their fires kindle and join the glowing. With our collective lights, the horizons grow further still until the resistant begin to see, however dimly, the real nature of the world. Bear's foot leafing through a mystery. And that's another wonderful hymen. Uh, that was uh, Wisdom is Not Given, So We Search in the Dark from Silent After by Joshua Eric Williams. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for being a guest. It's really fun. It's always fun talking about haiku, but you do such a great job with it. It's just uh, just wonderful. Each There's so much within each little haiku on every page. Uh, it's, it's really fun to talk to you about your process and how you're thinking about it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been a real, real joy, a gift <laughs> to me to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you and take care. And, and don't be a stranger. Come back sometime. All right, take care. That was uh, Joshua Eric Williams. Of course, his book is Silent After, the newest one. Uh, Before that, you have The Strangest Conversation, which is great as well. Both of them from Red Moon Press, which is one of the preeminent haiku publishers. Um, And you can find more of Josh's work at his website, which is uh, thesmallestwords.com. That's thesmallestwords.com. So find Josh there. Um, And now we're going to go to our prompt lines. And so... uh, I'm going to get the, uh, so here's how the prompt lines work. Say it that way. Here's the, the uh, prompt for this week was write a song of someone or something as a persona poem of exactly 32 lines. Uh, so that is your prompt for this week to share a poem. Um, and we have a 32 page line uh, requirement at this point. Um, so the two pages max doesn't really matter this time. But to share that poem, email your poem first to prompt lines. That's prompt lines, all one word, prompt lines at rattle.com. Prompt lines at rattle.com so we can show it on the screen like we were with the previous poems during the episode. Um, and then find the Zoom link, which I will put into the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube momentarily. Um, and so. Uh, Join us on the Zoom if you'd like to share your prompt poem. Uh, But only join the Zoom if you have a prompt poem to share. Otherwise, sit tight right where you are, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Uh, Thanks for your patience. We've got to turn this down. I turned this up too much. Uh, yeah, thanks for your patience. We're back with our prompt lines, with our prompt lines editor, Katie Dozier, right here. Uh, let's put your name well, on this. Well, I too. loved that interview. I'm such a big Joshua Eric Williams fan because he got me into haiku. Reading that haiku, I was like, whoa, there's a lot I'm missing here. 
Yeah, hopefully a lot of people felt that way because I mean it, it is really one of the great haiku Aww. that I've read in a while. I mean it's it was it was one of those ones where I submitted it for an award, and I was like, if this doesn't win the award, something's wrong with the awards. Yes, yes, <laughs> because yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is that good of a poem, yeah. and, and to be written, you know, that week for um for po for uh you know poet respond as it was with that context too but then th not even needing the context yeah. it was a really cool poem i would dub it a perfect poem there are very few i have never written anything <laughs> close to one of them but that is a perfect poem to me yeah well speaking of perfect poems though uh, what did you that write? is not a transition that works <laughs> in this case so, All right. <laughs> yeah, so as we saw, the prompt for this week was to write, uh, I'll put it on the screen one more time, it was to write a song of someone or something as a persona poem of exactly 32 lines, yeah. um, that both being, um, you know, a nod to the songs in last week's guest, mm -hmm. George David Clark's books, mm -hmm. but also um, because he's the editor of 32 Poems, so we thought we'd be a little cheeky with that and yeah. force everybody to write 32 right. lines. <laughs> and then also insert some juxtaposition between having a haikuist as the guest and then having long poems in the prop lines, I suppose. Yeah. Well, what I consider to be long poems, at least. <laughs> 32 lines was difficult for me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I, I did a bunch of different takes. My first was like really overwrought, where I was going to do two sonnets and create an envoy for the sonnets. And it was just like some sort of exercise in murdering haiku or murdering sonnets. So I stopped that. <laughs> so, so what did you write instead then? Okay, I went with something controversial in a different way. So this is Elon's song. What they don't realize about me is I'm the little boy in the back, the one that could never quite run fast enough to show all he could impact. So instead, I read, learned to shoot things far up, overhead, wondered why and found X is the answer. And when the stars seemed too close, I reached for Mars. A fear of the unknown is natural, so I decided to battle it, grab a rocket, arm myself with memes. Like it or not, my face will be the one on every socket. Watch as I switch off your TVs, slam them into the very black holes they used to broadcast out, rip to shreds that old couch you called the news. But no, I am not some kind of rat. I'm an immigrant and no evil capitalist at that. I buy promising plants when they are brown specks far from blooming. I'm just a guy standing in front of the world asking if I can try to save it. Instead, when she faints, coughs up a rainforest, they burn me down too. I'm trying to rocket you to the surface, so please stop punching me in the face. Better cars can keep us from worse wars, even though the root cause of everything the world desperately wants to ignore. Of course, it's easier to hate than help, easier to confuse blue checks with X's, to see nothing more than my diamond mine eyes, easier to pretend I'm nothing more. Uh, excellent. So Elon Musk, a really interesting figure. How did you decide to choose Elon Musk to sing a song for? You know, I don't even know, <laughs> to be honest, because I was like, with my first sonnet attempt, I was like, I need a different poem. This is not. And then I looked at my notes and I was like, oh, I wrote one. Oh, really? Because I just forgot. I wrote it really fast and forgot and then edited it. And I hope I counted the right number of lines. But oh. nobody check. Nobody, nobody check. <laughs> nobody check. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting, especially, you know, as we do the poetry space on Twitter. That's true. Um, and we wish, you know, as back in the days before Elon in a way, yeah. because there are a lot more poets on Twitter who could join us. There were. The but the space. ones who are there are awesome. <laughs> they definitely are. They definitely are. Well, anyway. Yeah, so that's a great poem. Elon's song. Um, really a surprising persona poem there. Thank you. Uh, for mine, I went with this, and, uh, you know, um, uh, George David Clark's poems were sonnets that he broke sort of in half, like mm -hmm. with, with uh, shorter lines, even though they were really just sonnets, mm -hmm. and both those, those, all three of those um, songs were. So I thought he did the same thing except with 16 lines, so it's like a 16-line sonnet, but then I, and I thought I had like a lot more room 
to like run with the you know the sonnet uh-huh. because oh I got extra lines right. I can, and then I got like you know three fourths the way and I was like oh crap I haven't done the turn yet <laughs> and so you'll see that this doesn't <laughs> there's a little bit of That's a problem important. yeah yeah the, the turn's a little late but um really if the, if I wasn't doing the 32 lines I would have made this a lot more a lot longer it would have made a little more uh it would have fit better maybe but I like shorter poems anyway so anyway this is Song of the Snow Player. And so, you know, back in Wrightwood right now, it was a snow player weekend, which is when we have snow that you can see from down in L.A. if you look up. <laughs> They're just like a beacon. And the population of our town, you know, magnifies by about fivefold. Like, like literally, I'm not even joking. It's like 5,000 normally. It's 20,000 20, or 25,000 wow. people can be up there just playing in everybody's yards. And, and it's sort of sweet in a way, but obnoxious in a way, too, because there's just a huge mess and you can't drive anywhere and people are rude because they're cranky from being uh, stuck in traffic just to get there. And then there's no actual place to play because there's 20,000 people trying to play. And it's just a real big mess. And it happens like the same pattern happens over and over again. So I thought I would try to personify that. And also we were at the, um, while the snow playing was going on in Wrightwood, we went to the Houston Museum of Fine Art here where the weather is nice mm-hmm. and, um, and saw some Monet paintings. So that thought was in the back of my head too at the same time so here comes song of the snow player uh, southern california the billboard mountains call us out to play at cold and snow but only for a day we'll buy a plastic sled and some gloves and say let's have a snowball fight a big melee we'll duck behind a tree the ricochet of powder all our hats in disarray we pack the car the kids a bit cliche like <laughs> presents stuffed in santa's magic sleigh the dog comes to his socks and french beret will force on for the photo op away we shout as if to deer who leap ballet but cars packed tighter than a cabaret who'd have thought so many thought this way the pristine snow is slush it's more gray and treated like an old ashtray this billboard dear was painted by monet <laughs> there you go and i think that uh that conversation goes on uh i think you know every you know I guess there's probably a family of four on average every mm-hmm. time, so probably you know mm-hmm. five thousand people have that conversation. I think every... with the beret, it's the beret also. Well, you'll <laughs> next weekend when you're there, you'll we'll drive. See. You'll see all the dogs and berets. Oh, I'm excited yeah. for that. Okay. Well, anyway, <laughs> that was a song of the snow player. Let's see uh, what everybody else has. And Mike Bales is uh, right there on the screen right now. Let's uh, start with him. Hey, Mike. Hello. Yes, quick with the trigger today. Yeah, um, good job. <laughs> I like that high bun. Something about walking through the woods, I think, is a huge metaphor. Obviously, I worked in forest in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which is nice. And when I walked this dog by Geneseo, it cut up from this old canal and go through a patch of trees. Um, you actually got me writing song lyrics. You were talking about... Us, sing it with someone sometime, put it to music at 10 oh, meters nice. out like a folk song. Uh-huh. Um, and I wrote, I haven't written song lyrics. That was about 20 years ago. And I don't think the person ever turned them into music. <laughs> it's called Credit Island and All My Yesterdays. That's kind of a getaway spot by Davenport. Uh-huh. Credit Island and All My Yesterdays. The Mississippi sang a tender song as I stood among trees and memories I'd always come back to the place I love and lose myself in time. On riding races here years before, while my dad so proud watched, where everybody who came won and nobody who started lost. I came there in spring or in the midst of summer, 
when in the moment when in the moment all that mattered was the breezes that whispered my dreams. The Mississippi sang a tender song as I stood among trees and memories. I'd always come back to the place I love and lose myself in time. I leave for the promise of glitter of Chicago and Des Moines, the seduction of jobs and, and blues and nightlight, but the soft voice always drew me back. I'd come back stunned after a breakup, an argument, a proposed little time, a conversation that lingered, and the river was at my side. The Mississippi sang a tender song as I stood among trees and memories. I'd always come back to the place I love and lose myself in time. I'd return to my place of seclusion, hidden from the onslaught of cars and trucks, always rushing to other places near and far. But it's here where I stood, embracing all my lives. Oh, like that. Song I love lyrics. That. Yeah, I love the song lyrics form. Like, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. I think so it's much. kind of folksy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We got to break out the guitar. I maybe. know. I want to hear the song. Yeah, break out the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks I for sang it that. after I wrote it. Uh huh. Oh. The melody came to me. Oh, you should s- sing a line for us. Can you sing? Um, What's the melody? Please. If I could do it. Okay. The Mississippi sang a tender song as I stood among the tr- among trees and memories, something like that. Uh, very the nice. meter's out, kind of folksy. Uh-huh. Aww, very good. Yeah, thanks great. so much for sharing that, Mike. Oh, how neat. <laughs> okay, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, there's Mike Bales with uh, Credit Island and All My Yesterdays. Great title, too, yeah. for a song. I like that. Bob Dylan would be yeah. proud. Yeah, it's Bob Dylan. <laughs> uh, let's go next to uh, Joe Cottonwood. Okay. Yeah, hey, Joe. Uh, see you. Hi. Yeah. I, I, when I saw the prompt, I swear it didn't say anything about a persona poem. It said, write a 32-line song. And then the thing about persona must have been added later. <laughs> anyway... I've got a song, uh-huh. and it's a real song. I mean, I, I started out. Songwriting was my gateway into poetry, like fifty some years ago. Huh. Um, so I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> no way. Okay. Uh, well, you don't want to. Well, it's been it. laid down. We we won't ask. <laughs> but, but but yeah, go ahead. My my, my son could sing it. I I collaborate with my son. He's the musician. Oh, Aww, that's great. Yeah. But um, anyway. This is called Second Growth Wood. And I'll, I'll try to give some of the effect of the song through my narration. I don't know whether I can pull that off or not. I think you can. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll see. Second Growth Wood. Blue winged dragonfly with hairy legs. My, oh my. New tree growing where the old ones stood. I took my first steps in the second growth wood. A hole in the fence by the buckeye tree, crossed the creek at the gravel bar, up the hill picking blackberries to the shack on the hill with a junker car. Shotgun lady lives in there, her temper's always sore. Rotten apples all over the yard, throw one at her front door. Run, run. Fast as you can. She saw you throw. Screen door slam. Down the hill where the sawmill stood. Caught my breath in the second growth wood. Amy would go there to watch the birds. Woodpecker, quail, and blue jay. She had an inzy. I had an outsy. We checked them every day. (laughs) 
Hooty Owl, musical song, sounds like Amy, then it's gone. We never knew we had it so good. She was my friend in the second growth wood. I carved her name in a cedar tree, never could say why. Her dad got transferred to Oregon. I cried that day she said goodbye. Dragonfly, big as a bird, sits on my shoulder. How absurd. I'd go back if only I could. My first broken heart in the second growth wood. Hmm. Aw, what a yeah, wonderful poem is. and a whole journey. Yeah, definitely, wow. Joe. And he couldn't help but sing. Yeah. <laughs> so it just comes out. Yeah. The song is in there. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love that about the the innies and outies. Yeah, that's <laughs> so a great detail. Too. Yeah, that's yeah. my favorite line. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that, Joe. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, Joe Cottonwood with uh, the second growth wood. <laughs> a very good poem there. And um, <clears throat> let's go next to Carla Schwartz. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Hey, Carla. Yeah. Oh, such a good night. Wonderful interview. Thank you. Well, thank you. And um, so this poem is actually an ekphrastic poem, uh, but I don't have the picture to show you uh, yet right here. And this is called Song of the Nude Marble Statue My Young Father Poses With. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great, some really great titles already this week. Yeah. Thank you. Don't touch me. You bore me. I'm here for the hundreds, crooked on my elbow to gaze at the willows, my scant drape thigh clasped, not hiding from weather, here for all seasons, stone cold marble. You touch the backside of my elbow, study the soft curves of my muscles, my back, I won't lean into shadow, won't bow in shame. You can't shame me, young man, young bow-tied man. I flip you my scrolls of curls. What's that in your pocket? What's that on your mind? Your beautiful wife or my beautiful back? Your younger girls? Or my supple spine. Mm, very nice, Carl. I love that ending. I love the scrolls of curls. <laughs> like that seems like something I should have heard before, but I don't think I have. I really like that. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah it is one of those lines. Yeah, that you're like, is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very good. Thanks so much for sharing. <laughs> Thank that, Carla. you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was Carla Schwartz with a uh, song of the nude marble statue my father poses with. Very cool. And then let's go to Deborah Tenenbaum next. Hello. Hi. Hey, Deb. Yeah, great to see you. <laughs> yeah, I love the music in all of the uh, songs that I've been hearing, and the haiku was just so great, so oh, great. Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. It's been so long that I've froze. been on that I had a chance oh, to um, <laughs> I um, have a poem that I wrote for last month, because mm-hmm. I'm uh, prompt from last month, because I'm one of the ones who hasn't been quick enough to get them done by Monday. <laughs> well, that's all right. Good clarification, and, too. I, and I, yeah. should, I should say, yeah, any, from any month is, or any this month or whatever is, yeah. is great. Yeah, or yeah. any old ones. Anything that came from the prompt, 
from the prompt. From the yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah. And this is the was the prompt about um, a detail in the background of a photo. Ah, mm -hmm. oh, that's a good prompt. Yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Okay. So. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. You got it? All yep, right. It's ahead. called In the Living Room of Our Shabby Summer Sublet, 1978. We are all 20. Only Mike is in the frame of the photo. He sits front and center. The chair is draped in a bright red throw, a throw placed by Ruby to cover the ugliness of the chair's fabric. Her paintings and Matisse posters hang on the dingy walls. There are cockroaches. We reach into the kitchen to turn on the light. They scurry out of sight. In a couple of months, we will scurry too. But like I was saying, Mike is front and center, his young face arresting with its lush eyebrows, prominent nose, full lips, and faint mustache. His hair is front and center too, a late 70s bouffant of voluminous brown curls and waves. His head tilts slightly away from the camera. His eyes shift a little sideways to meet the instamatic held by Ruby. She's my best friend, the one Mike loves, the one who doesn't love him back, who doesn't see him as boyfriend material. She's the one who sometimes on the sly takes Mike upstairs to bed. She turns on the lamp, dims its glow with a scarf that's red. Mood lightning. I mean lighting. She swings the arm of her record player onto a favorite album. Jackson Brown begins to sing. Picture Mike sitting front and center in the living room in t-shirt and jeans. The contours of his tanned, lean body are muscular and yielding. He reclines in the chair with his knees spread wide. His hands are joined in front of his crotch. Look closely. He cradles a yellow-handled screwdriver with the tip aimed casually at half-mast, wistfully, towards Ruby. She snaps his likeness. Wow, very vivid. Yeah, description yeah. of that picture. Thanks so much for sharing that. I've I've got a I, I'm covering the face, but here's the here's the picture. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's great. Wow, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, wonderful picture thanks, and great, Deb. great poem that inspired. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Yep, take care. That was uh, Deb Tenenbaum with uh, In the Living Room of Our Shabby Summer Sublet, 1978. Very cool. I That's... feel like we could string together all these titles. We'd have a poem. Right? <laughs> I mean, the, the titles have, like, leveled up. I know, they really have. <laughs> they really all around. That, those titles are way better than my way titles. Way better than my titles. <laughs> okay, Laura Berg's up next. Hey, Laura. Hello. Hi. Sorry. Oh, no, no problem. Hello. Oh, this um so enjoyable. It was quite a difficult prompt for me. Um, but so I made a silly poem. Um, <laughs> and I that? have it there. I um have a picture to go with it. When you pull it up, it says mm -hmm. Poe and Katarina there. Oh, there's Poe and his cat, Katarina. Um, there's right? Poe and the cat, yeah. <laughs> and I just mentioned in my note to you that I thought of Zachary Honeycutt when I was doing it. He's <laughs> I bet. Of Poe. Yeah, he's definitely going to appreciate it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought maybe this is Catterall instead of Doggerel. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
That's great. Uh, okay. so, um, it's called a uh, Valentine from Katarina to Eddie. Hmm. <laughs> I who wrap my calico self around your neck like a snood Eddie made this song for you. I who have perfected the art of mauling reveries extend my delicate claws to nick your chin as kill, kill, kill tolls inside me the way bells toll inside you. I mule only for you, my Eddie, though I may nestle nights by your waning wife. I, your Katerina, sing of me only to you, my satin songs of slaughter, as only a kitty can, and how alike we seem. I who rub my fangs along your cheek and scheme lethal lines of attack against your quill, and you, eyes distant, piercing through the ether of imagination on the hunt, and why would I be jealous since I hunt there too? Oh, that's wonderful. I wow, love that. That's yeah. great. The, a Valentine from Katerina to Eddie. That's such a creative yeah. idea. And then the execution somehow even better than mm-hmm. the idea, which is amazing. Yeah, it really is, Laura. Great poem. Yeah. I love the, the rhythms of it and the rhyme, yeah. the internal rhyme there. Yeah. 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 Catarel. Yes. <laughs> that's great. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Yeah, that was Laura Berg with uh, a Valentine from Katerina to Eddie. <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> And uh, Penelope Moffat is up next. I think this is Penelope's first time on Open Lines, maybe. Hey, Penelope. Hi. Yeah, it is the first time. I've been coming to the Rattlecast really regularly for about a year. Yeah, I've noticed you in the chat windows. It's been great to see because you, of course, well, of course, to me, but to no one else. Penelope went to our our live, uh, you know, when we had a regular monthly reading for years at the Flint Ridge Bookstore in La Cunata. Yeah, Penelope was a regular on the open mic there. So it's always great to see you in the chat window and great, even better to see it, you know, in the in the video, too. Right. And before that, I went to the readings at the Church in Ocean Park. I mm. love those. Yeah, those well. are my favorite, to be honest. I've heard stories. <laughs> they sounded yeah. really fun. I mean, really, I mean, talk about poetry as like a spiritual practice, whatever. Uh-huh. To do with this beautiful, you know, Methodist church was just wonderful every, wow. you know, every couple months. Yeah. So what do you have to share with us? Okay. Um, I have a poem from last week's poem. Uh-huh. And... Um, it's called A Brief History of Schnickelfritz. Oh, I love that word. <laughs> My mother named her Schnickelfritz, mischievous child, a gray tabby who hummed the world to sleep with her sweet fur. One of the pets. Oh, the microphone cut out, Penelope. Um, it's not muted. Okay. Oh, there you go. You're back. Yep. Yep. Something happened. Yeah. Do you want to take it from the top since it's short? Okay. Yeah. Um, A brief brief history of Schnickelfritz. My mother named her Schnickelfritz, mischievous child, a gray tabby who hummed the world to sleep with her sweet purr. One of the pets who lived with us until we moved and left them. We moved a lot. We shed those cats like fleas and then hatched more. I swore I'd care for future felines their whole lives. The two I live with now are 17 and 15, but they still can whisk around like schnickelfritzes 
pratfalls and all. They blessed me with their biscuit-making paws. Oh, that's just wonderful. I love that schnickel fritz. That's yeah. <laughs> really touching. Yeah, great memory, great word, too. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Penelope, and, and great to see you again. It's, it's been a while. It's really fun. Really nice to see you. Yep, take care. Okay. Yeah. It was Penelope Moffat uh, from L.A. still, I assume. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's go next to Brian O'Sullivan. Hello. Hey, Brian. Hi. How you doing? It's a great night. Yeah. All great stuff. So I uh, did the same trick as you, Tim. I broke up my lines of the two. Um, <laughs> All right, everybody. That, I'm on like, to you. It's like counting by twos. Right? <laughs> I always want to be like, like two, four, six, thirty-two. Some of know. us are honest people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't even think 32 sounded that low, but I just liked that trick that Clark was doing with the yeah. Yeah, well, to make it was, I, I just felt to make it, and, and mine was like mono rhyme, so mm-hmm. it felt like it was... To, to hide the music a it little more. It worked well in yours. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I, I didn't have that much music to hide. I mean, I think it's only a song in the sense that it's after Whitman's song and Clark's song. Um, so it's a nominal song. But anyway, um, so it's called The Song of the Open Web. After Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road and George David Clark's Song of the Genie. Oh. Aloof and restless, you take to the open web. We are your net. You harvest all our listicles and every cat photo. You influence our influencers. You're browsed by our browsers. You bite all our bites. You argue about the Insurrection Act with anonymous amateur lawyers becoming their frenemy before you know it. You follow our Facebook friends forever unmet. But we also bring you the Rattlecasts and Amazon's Kindle, and you match DNA with forgotten cousins and learn forgotten history. Always remember that even in Forster's dystopia, which we showed you, human connections had expanded in certain directions. You have to wonder if, in our time, the connections have not yet been exceeded by the disconnects. We think perhaps you are not ready for this machine to stop. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love all those references yeah, in that. God, Very fun great. poem, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, great Fun to write. Thanks for the prompt. Yeah, thanks okay. so much, Brian. Yeah, yeah, just excellent night of... Uh for the prop poems. Let's see uh, Monica Dobos next. Hello, everyone. Hey, Monica. So I have Al Capone tonight for you. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) And of course, I took some freedom with the prompt, like it's not necessarily a a song, but um, I have great sympathy for the guy because he died of syphilis, you know? Well, that's right, for sure. That's not a way I'd like to go. Penicillin was invented, uh, you know, but, you know, it already reached his brain, so it mm-hmm. wasn't helpful. Oh, well, yeah, I never I knew that. that. Yeah. Yep, learning mm. already. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Al Capone takes up the banjo in prison. On June 23, 1936, Capone was stabbed and superficially wounded by fellow Alcatraz inmate James C. Lucas. Now, the sentence that followed is not sequential, but it's important for the poem. Mm-hmm. Due to his good behavior, Capone was permitted to play banjo in the Alcatraz prison band, the Rock Islanders, which gave regular Sunday concerts for other inmates. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. <laughs> That's <there>. really interesting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, here we go. Clouds are moaning with manna. The sun puts on hair rollers, coy behind the curtains. I think of the pea-sized drops that would gather on my bulletproof 1928 Cadillac 
once the clouds climax. I really miss the rain, but not watching it from my cell window, nose pressed to the bars like a Boston Terrier waiting for his daddy, but feeling it on my cheeks and lips, hearing its song, the splash it makes on my diamond pinky ring, the way it skedaddits and the doodops on my hat on the way to the green mill, where Lee on one knee and Sherry on the other, each want a piece of my ears. But alas, too sick in my groin, too swollen my sack, I push that thought away and pick up the banjo and play until my cheeks bloom fuller, my eyebrows grow thicker, until my, sorry, until I'm light as rain. So when James creeps in on me one day, stabs me in the arm, my cake was bigger than his at lunch. I give him a hug because my heart, by now a cauliflower of sound, sucks in all the love it can bound. Oh, wow. Yeah. I love the cauliflower sound. Wow. Especially <laughs> cauliflower is like my favorite vegetable, so I love it even more. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. great images throughout yeah. there and a great ending, too. Yeah, thanks yeah. for sharing that, Monica. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, really, I just love all these poems tonight. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a hard prompt, but and the trouble yeah, is, it was for we're us. Gonna to, we're gonna have to give hard prompts all the time. I, I guess it's like look, <laughs> people. Do, I swear though, the the poems are even better when I think the prompt is hard. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. All right. Well, next up, um, let's go to uh, David Regan or Reagan, I should say. No, it's, it's Reagan, Tim. Reagan, and hello, Tim. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us. A first time caller this week. Yeah, I actually called in a couple of years ago, but it's been a while. Oh, great. Well, where are you calling from? I don't recall. From Melbourne. Oh, in Australia. wow. Yeah, excellent. So what time of day is it there? Is it? Uh, it's almost two o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, nice. Yeah. Day, but it's Tuesday here. <laughs> Whoa, time travel. Tuesday traveling. morning rattlecast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you could be here. What do you have to share with us? Um, look, I've had a bit of fun with this prompt and mm -hmm. actually written a song in the voice of a well-known songwriter, Leonard Cohen. Mm. Oh, here we go. Waiting for Leonard. I said to Hank Williams, how lonely does it get? Hank Williams hasn't answered yet. Waiting here for Leonard at a table set for two in this seaside bar on Idra where he's been known to pass through. The waiter greets me fondly. He pours a glass of wine, says, it's best I leave the bottle. You could be waiting for a while. So I decide to write a homage to the poet king of darkness, some thoughts and words I imagine he might say if he were here beside me plucking strings and singing wryly as this summer evening slowly ebbs away. Waiting, ever waiting for the moment to begin, for the beggars to take precedence for the war against our sins. Tell me in the next life, is there right or wrong? Will we still be waiting? Will all our sins be gone? I'm still looking for forgiveness from what I'll never tell, but the saints are lost in purgatory and the priests have gone to hell. So I'll just forgive myself for now and hope that I'll be free from all those things I never did from that apple on the tree. Now, Leonard, if you're listening from somewhere in the distance, the seats are full, 
Your band waits silent on the stage. Can you take a few more Zoloft and dust that old guitar off? The lights are dim. There's no need to be afraid. Hmm. Oh, that is excellent. Yeah, I love yeah. that too. I love the Zoloft and yeah. guitar off rhyme. That's a great rhyme. That has cool probably appeared in many poems before. That's unique. Yeah, but it strikes me too with the, the ballad measure and how much that, you know, just naturally, like it was hard, it's hard. Everybody who's written in a ballad is, is struggling not to sing. Yeah. <laughs> which is really great. <laughs> great. You can hear the, the melody coming out once yeah. again. Thanks for sharing that. Right. Thank you. Have yeah. a good Tuesday. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Please do. Yep. Take care. Yeah, so it's David Regan, uh, once again, from Melbourne. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us. Okay. And uh, next, let's go to uh, Jared Campbell, who was a first-time caller last week, I believe. Hey. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Hi. hey, Jared. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming back. Yep, thank you. Um, so I decided to murder four sonnets. Ah. Yay! Um, <laughs> and uh, the... A, a cottontail rabbit is the speaker of the poem. Interesting. So this this is year of the rabbit. Okay. Spring. Snows perfect crystals devolve to rain. Air grows thick with pollen, musk, and sweat. More, the earth demands. Pleasure, pain, and self are abstract and meaningless. We need to box and bite and strain for more. The beauty of the earth is not yet, not perfection, but promise, not the octave, but the unspoken sestet. Summer, listening for danger on the wind, buried in cicada roar. Is that the pulse of wings, the footfall of a cat, scanning a blue-green world, frozen, pinned, thinking my escape routes what to jump through, what to scamper underneath. I feel the ceaseless growing of my teeth, my urgent need to chew. Fall. The little pear tree droops with wealth. The yard is littered, an embarrassment of fruit in every state. Some rotten, others hard, lies gratis and abundant to refute the mad distractions of the saver. Eat what you can and let the rest be wasted. I dine. Attempting to describe the flavor would only slander a truth that must be tasted. Winter. Somewhere in this land of wind and ice, hidden from the vagaries of weather, sustained by the warmth of being together, huddled hordes of squirrels and mice and such repulsive vermin shelter in place. I prefer a nice suburban hedge or thicket or a greenway on the edge of town, a shallow depression, my own space. Oh, those yeah. were excellent. Yeah, they used to rhyme and meter yeah. and, and jam it. Just wonderful yeah. there in Year of the Rabbit and great, great empathy too, leaping yeah. into that persona. And dividing it into seasons like that was a really cool idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah it definitely was. Yeah. yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, it was Jared Campbell with A Year of a Rabbit. Mm. Year of the Rabbit, I should say. Uh, Mary Keating is up next. Hi. Hi. Hey, Mary. How are you? We're great. Well, I'll speak for myself. Uh, I'm great. We're great. Okay. <laughs> oh, you're great. 
Okay, well, this is for you, Katie. Aww. <laughs> editor's, editor's choice. Uh-huh. Your sweet prompt maiden drowns in poems galore. <laughs> if but for email, poems would drench my floor. I spawned this swarming sea of poetry, assigning weekly prompts relentlessly. Each Monday, poets rattle about my world as magic spaces forged in verse unfurl. I roam all countries from my Texan home and wrangle forms to catch the perfect poem. (laughs) Your lyrics range from sonnets to haiku and simmer in my brain like hearty stew. Each Monday, poets rattle about my world as magic spaces forged with verse unfurl. Your poems and gender limbs like octopi. There's not one prompt you're afraid to try and try and try and try and try. Sometimes I cannot shudder. I cannot not shudder. Why? Oh, why? Each Monday, poets rattle about my world as magic spaces forge with verse unfurl. Of all the poems I'm blessed to greet, Sorry, of all the monthly poems I'm blessed to greet, one poem will sway me with its siren feet. (laughs) A ballerina like a butterfly, a jazz musician drawing out a sigh. Each Monday, poets rattle about my world as magic spaces forge with verse unfurl. It's rumored poets form a ruthless bunch. Some tried to bribe me. Roses, diamonds... (laughs) Lunch? <laughs> Alas, your Katie's quite an honest lass. All cheaters quash with rattles for hard pass. <laughs> so here's the secret how you win first prize. Produce a poem that won't glaze tired eyes. A poem to grow with, spin infinity. Perhaps a persona poem starring me. <laughs> That's so funny. Though. Yeah, well... We'll zoom in here on, uh, on Katie blushing. Oh, no, I'm crying and laughing. That was so sweet, Mary. Thank you for writing that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was Oh, so it's fun. fun. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, and it is such a great addition to the Rattlecast having Aww. Katie on to do prompt poems with us. Aww. Thank you so that. much, Mary. You're, you're welcome. Bye. Yeah, bye. Thanks so much. Yeah, that was Mary Keating with Editor's Choice. Aww. Uh, yeah, great. That was so fun. Aww. And true. Aww. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, it was Mary Keating. And uh, next, let's go to Rob Harris. Oh, how are hey. you? Yeah, great. Yeah, having a lot of Good fun to tonight. See you. Great, really great poems. A lot of fun. It's going to be hard to follow. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it my best. Um, I actually um, am. I, mine is, I guess you call it a split persona poem, and mm-hmm. the split persona is. Me in 1987, the first time I saw you two play in concert, uh, and me in 2024 because I'm going on Thursday night to see them in the Sphere, oh, in Las Vegas. Cool, the Sphere, the sphere. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, we've driven around Vegas it. since that. It is, yeah. it is so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> it, they showed it on the Super Bowl. They showed it at the Grammys. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, nothing. I, I, don't know, the, I don't know. Have you been there yet in person? No, no, this is yeah. my first time. I mean, seeing so. it from like the distance is mm-hmm. so surreal. 
Like yeah. the TV doesn't do it justice. My favorite is when they do the thing where they make it look like the moon, and it literally looks like the moon is just sitting on the strip. <laughs> and I, I lived in Vegas for a while, so it's even more disorienting to see this like plopped there. Yeah. It's wild. It, it, it is very. It surreal. really. Yeah. And especially with the Super Bowl just going on, it's they were never shy about showing you know what was yeah. going on mm-hmm. in the sphere. So um, yeah. I kind of used to, those two uh, events as kind of my split uh, persona. So I did. Uh, two two rhyming uh i guess uh couplets together mm-hmm. so uh it goes like this and the first one the title is song of horizon and sphere the first concert i saw was at the rosemont horizon in chicago mm-hmm. and uh the sphere is obviously the one in las vegas so it's split between me back then and me today so um it goes like this song of horizon and sphere the ticket back then cost 1650 while today's was a whole lot more I was a college freshman then, and now I'm beyond 54. I own nothing in those days. Today, I possess quite enough. I was very stoned that first time. (laughs) Now I'm off the booze and stuff. Life stretched out before me back then, yet today so much is behind. I was very nervous back then, but now I don't pay too much mind. In those days, I lived life for myself. Today, I've got a great family. My room once had and board attached. Now I'm the one who's feeding me. I caught a ride to see that show, and today I'm taking a flight. Rock's hottest ticket it won't be, but the venue will be such a sight. (laughs) That clueless dope from 1987 and the middle-aged me in 2024, we have almost nothing in common, but we're both rockers to our core. (laughs) The music meant everything once, and that's also the case today. Our circumstances now are quite different, but you too still continue to play. the thrill and i'm glad to do it again this will probably be the last time what a ride this life has been oh wow yeah that's great it's great looking back at the yeah you <laughs> at the past and you should tell us how the concert was too i want to hear yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I, a full report yeah <laughs> i might do it in poetic form if that's okay that's the best way to do it definitely <laughs> <laughs> okay well i'll Excellent. i'll keep everyone in mind when i'm there so Have a great uh, time. you'll get reports in. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Time, I appreciate Rob. it. Yeah. Thanks for letting me read it. Yep, yep. Take care. Yeah, we'll see you. Have see a great you week. <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was Rob Harris with a song of Horizon and Sphere. Uh, next up, let's go to uh, Bishwajit Mishra. Hey, Tim and Katie. Hey, Bishwajit. Hey. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm just going to warm my chair, seat here. <laughs> I, it was tough for me to write this. <laughs> what was tough about yeah. it for you? Yeah, I yeah, know. I mean, there's 32 lines, and some days are like that. You, you can't just, it just doesn't tell me, you just try them. <laughs> well, you've been writing so many haiku, I guess, lately that it's like a real switch to go from haiku to this. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I like both forms. I like long. I mean, yeah. some can fit into haiku. Something you need a, a mm-hmm. longer form. So yeah. I don't know. Everything is a learning for me, <laughs> but it's fun to write. Yes, definitely. And the camaraderie of the group, the sharing and the talking, and the best part is the reading part. I wouldn't give up anything for this. This is uh-huh. more than pop- getting published, right? Aww. Well, that's great. I, I mean, just, what can it's what I always love about publishing. Here, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and this mm-hmm. was you can say that you went into a separate room during a party to participate. So you're saying the truth once. That's true. <laughs> but I can tell most of uh, our folks here, every one of them is enjoying this. Mm-hmm. So here is my <laughs> bouncing up. Okay, let's hear. 
up the stairs I want to go, not just a gradient there and a kick, a push or a throw that lets me go anywhere, but never a choice of my own to rise high, not just to roll on. I know how to roll, but I'm ambitious now. Rolling can just be all. I need to know how to break the mundane, climb up, not down again. I ask the stairs to help, who say loud and clear, we can't tell you how to prep, because we are just there. It's for the user to choose to go up or down too. You have no latent force to go to a place on your own. No talent to make a choice until a kick from someone gets you up, then down, with the left momentum. We can offer advice though. Let go and be with the way. When you get a kick or a throw, up, then down, go with the sway. And you'll go up again, having fun, until the momentum is done. I woke up from a dream game. I was a ball. I'm still the same. <laughs> <laughs> I love that surprise metaphor. Yeah, the end. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did not see that coming. A little it twist. bounced into the end. Right? <laughs> did a good spin okay. on that. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah, Here thanks so much. Cheers. Was... Good night. Yeah, good, good, night. good night. Good night. <laughs> yeah, it was bouncing up by Bismuth Mishra. All right, and that's going to wrap up the uh, prompt line. So thanks everybody for sharing poems. It really has been a fabulous set. Yeah, uh, maybe one of our one of our best ever. I really would say. Yeah. I would too. Although we keep having to say that every week, it's just been well, really actually it's better and better every week. <laughs> well, if every every time it gets better, that means it's the best that's week true, ever every time. That's true. <laughs> so um, so quickly, let's do the uh, saiku for this week, and the saiku is based on this article right here which i don't even remember because it was like days ago where i put this up let's see um oh yeah so here is um uh here's the article um can i get this like tiny so i can read it once again okay mima's surprise tiny moon holds young ocean beneath icy shell and so um they figured out based on the internal sort of gravity waves that were pulsing through the surface that they could monitor that there's a hidden beneath the heavily cratered surface of Mimas, which is like one of the smallest moons of Saturn, okay. lies a secret global ocean of liquid water. Whoa. So the whole thing is like an ocean and then there's like this frozen ice shell on top of it. You can see a picture of of the uh the moon here and that's what it looks like with this huge crater. And it was, and the moon is only fifteen million, five to fifteen million years old, which is very young in terms of like ocean starting. So if you want to look for like the, you know, the origins of life and how life might have developed, this is like a little incubator for like the history possibly of life on Earth. And so once yeah. we can get there and drill down and explore, maybe there's like, you know, heterotrophs or things like that. Who knows what? But it's very fascinating to see mm -hmm. uh, there what you know what the moon might hold. And here is the. Saiku based on that. Let me kind of think of this. The Saiku is this. Ocean waves beneath the surface of her shell. Mm -hmm. Ocean waves beneath the surface of her shell. That is the Saiku for this week. And next week's prompt is going to be this. Do you want to read it off, Katie? 
I do. So I feel like, first of all, it's funny because a lot of times during the show, like people guess. And I was thinking like people are going to guess what the prompt is going to be this week, right? We have Joshua Eric Williams. We know where this is going, people. So we are going to write a haiku sequence that talks about love without mentioning it by name. So a little bit of a nod to Valentine's Day uh, combined with a haiku sequence. And I am really excited about this yeah, prompt. I, we do love haiku. We love haiku sequences. We love love. It's all things. Yeah. Uh, that we love, and we love talking about things without saying them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Although, also by, by saying them, like we are going to say on the poetry space, where we're going to define different <laughs> forms. Which you guys, you know, you and Josh were talking so much about what defines a haiku, and then we're going to talk about what defines a sonnet, a guzzle, and other things like that over on Thursday on X. Yeah, that is the poetry space on Thursdays, and really, it was um, two things. I don't know if anybody saw, but on social media, people were talking all about um, Diane Seuss's book. Uh, Frank sonnets and whether or not they were actually sonnets mm-hmm. because somebody uh, you know was like, hey, how are these possibly sonnets when they're not metered or rhymed? It's a little snarkier than that. A little bit, <laughs> a little bit snarky. But yeah. <laughs> and then Diane Seuss replied, which was kind of funny, and then it just sort of yeah. blew up into a social media thing, which was yes. fun. And then also the Haiku Foundation um, published a, an article sort of discussing our ten sloppy haiku ordinary life by mm-hmm. Bruce Cohen. As if they were sort of trying to be haiku, and are they really haiku, even mm-hmm. though they're sloppy haiku, and that was sort of the joke. Mm-hmm. But it was just fun to talk about, um, does it matter what, uh, you know, right. what categories matter? So yeah. that's what we're going to be talking about, um, you know, how do poems fit in categories, and should we have them at all? And yeah, what's kind the of thing. point of having definitions of anything? Exactly. We could just talk in grunts. <laughs> or not speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, that's going to be the poetry space. If you want to join us, follow me or Katie on Twitter, Timothy Green or Katie underscore Dozier oh, nice. to find those. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But then, yeah, so that's going to be the prompt or mm-hmm. the... That's going to be the discussion the poetry on space. Thursday. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this is the prompt for next week's, though. Write a haiku I'm sequence. really excited about it. I'm sorry. I know I keep saying that, but I just feel like everybody's <laughs> going to hit it out of the park. It's going to be amazing. And I'm really excited. And we're, we're going to do it like the traditional thing of reading it twice or not. Well, no, in sequences, usually you don't. You don't do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, or in Haibun, too, by the way. So, if, yeah. if it's like sitting there all by itself, mm-hmm. the tradition is to read it mm-hmm. twice, but not everybody does. Mm-hmm. But then, usually in sequences or, uh, mm-hmm. or Haibun. You know, maybe too, really quick, um, do you want to say what you think a haiku sequence actually is? Because we didn't get into too much of a discussion during the show as much about like a hmm. sequence. Well, I, I think haiku that connect in some way. Yeah, I would say some sort of progression. So it, mm-hmm. it doesn't, you don't have to repeat like a, a line of the haiku and then expand on it. That would be like a more literal interpretation, I would say, of a haiku sequence. But I like just, you know, if, if it's some sort of progression felt amongst haiku would be my how I would look at it personally. Mm-hmm. I always take things as liberally as possible. <laughs> I think it's kind That's of my true. thing. I mean, there are a whole bunch. I mean, you can look back at the Michael uh, Dylan Welch episode. Mm-hmm. He had, um, mm-hmm. you know, that is it Separation where he repeated yeah. that. And he has another one that's the mm-hmm. jukebox, the hydrogen jukebox. Oh, one. wow. Yeah, I yeah. forgot about that one. Yeah, So he's definitely. got some interesting ones that yeah. repeat. You can do whatever you want. You can link them in some mm-hmm. way. You can not link them but have them around a theme. Yeah, yeah. there's so many. Yeah. yeah. We, because we also, I think, we did a haiku episode of the Poetry Space where we talked about sequences somewhat, too. And Josh was in that episode also. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. was, that's right. He was, yeah. yeah. All right, well, anyway, that is uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is the prompt for this week. And uh, now next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Sally Ashton. Speaking of listening in other planets and, you know, moons and space, she had a, pro- a Poetry Spawn poem called Listening to Mars, which became the title to her fifth book, Listening to Mars. She's going to be the guest next week. Um, she's also the uh, editor of DMQ Review. Uh, Reviewers at Quarterly. 
Review. I think it's DMQ Review. She's the editor of that. She's also the author of Listening to Mars. It's be really fun talking to her about poetry and her new book. That's Relicast number 233, uh, Monday, February 19th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you there. Hope to see you on the Poetry Space and Critique of the Week in the meantime. And I hope you have just a great week and a great Valentine's Day, too. Yeah, happy Valentine's will, Day. Uh, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> uh, good night.